knowledge, and human meaning. Imagine standing at night among the stacks of a large library. Imagine also that you are the only person in the building. It would be easy to feel as though the odd noises you hear are whispers from the books, and that, as the night goes on, the whispers will get louder and louder, becoming deafening. Wandering past row after row of books, you may feel a bit daunted, or frightened even, by all the knowledge that people have accumulated. In fact, for anyone in the knowledge business, such an experience can be a bit depressing, making brutally clear how minuscule an amount of knowledge any one of us can accumulate. But it is useful to recognize that the only knowledge in that vast library is what is in your head. What is in the books is merely desiccated code, not voices. Knowledge is not symbols. Symbols are just reminders of knowledge, hints, pointers. Knowledge is a function of the living tissue of our living brains. Obvious as this point is, I think we often forget it. We can easily forget that learning the symbols in which knowledge is encoded is no guarantee at all of knowing. All knowledge is human knowledge. It is a product of human hopes and fears and passions. The primary trick in bringing knowledge to life from the codes in which we store it is through the emotions that gave it life in the first place in some other mind. Knowledge, again, is part of living human tissue. Books and libraries contain only desiccated codes. The business of education is enabling new minds to bring old knowledge to new life and meaning. Scientific knowledge, especially as stacked in textbooks, has an aura of objectivity. It is secure, uninfluenced by what readers might hope or fear, a solid assertion of what is true, or at least, that is what we are supposed to think. That kind of security and objectivity has commonly been seen as one of the great products of the development of literacy. But literacy had been employed for a great variety of tasks before it was used in the development of science. We might do well to focus on the kind of knowledge that was found engaging and meaningful by people during the early years of literacy's use. The educational trick is to show knowledge as the product of human beings' ingenuity, energy, passions, hopes, fears, and so on. People like us made it, invented it, discovered it, formulated it for human purposes, with human motives. Instead of representing knowledge to the newly literate as a given, telling them the rules for comma use or mathematical operations, and making them do exercises till they get the rules right, you can make the knowledge memorable and meaningful by re-embedding it in the context of its original invention or human uses. When students learn a mathematical algorithm, for example, by seeing who invented it and for what purpose, or how it is used for some dramatic purpose today, they absorb it more easily, understand it better, and remember it. In the imaginative classroom, we will bear in mind that everything we teach has a human source. The comma was invented by someone and has had astonishing effects in human history. The life cycle of the eel was discovered by someone and fascinates those who learn about it. Geometric theorems were invented by someone and used by people to achieve amazing things. And that bringing to the fore the human emotions, ambitions, intentions, fears, and so on, we can expect to engage our students' imaginations in learning. The imaginative classroom will be full of people, past and present, and full of their voices, hopes, fears, and passions. By using this cognitive tool in our teaching, we will in turn help students develop it further, enabling them to see human emotions behind and below the surface features they have to deal with. Such a tool simply enriches life. In teaching the geometric theorem for calculating height, the teacher might begin by telling the story of the ancient Greek Thales as a tourist in Egypt, fascinated by the pyramids. One day, the guide told his small group that the pyramid they had ridden out to that morning was the tallest of all the pyramids. Thales asked, How tall is it? Uh, well, I don't know, said the guide, embarrassed. I guess if we climbed to the top and let down a rope, hmm, that wouldn't be any good. It would only measure the side. The other tourists wondered how anyone could measure the height of a pyramid, while Thales just seemed to be walking around. Okay, your pyramid is 329 cubits high, Thales said. Everyone was astonished. How could Thales have worked it out? 
The teacher could introduce this story after some preliminary work had been done, on triangulation, and lead into showing that if Thales knew how tall he was, and how long his shadow was, and was able to pace off the length of the pyramid shadow, he could figure out the height of the pyramid. The students are learning the same geometric theorem as those who do not have it tied, even in this simple way, in some human source. But the students who spend some thought on working out what Thales was doing pacing around in the desert sands, and who feel the ingenuity of his clever solution, are likely to learn it better and remember it longer, and find it more meaningful and engaging. Narrative Understanding In Chapter 1 I suggested that the story was crucial in early learning because it was the tool that enables us to bring curriculum content and emotion together to make knowledge more fully meaningful to the student. That remains largely true for older adults, but the kind of story that engages them is different from the basic story structures more common in the early years. Instead of continuing to use the term story and to avoid possible confusion, I will switch to the word narrative for equivalent techniques tailored to this level of understanding, perhaps creating a whole new kind of confusion. A narrative is a continuous account of a series of events or facts that shape them into an emotionally satisfactory whole. It has in common with a story that shaping of emotion, and so the words are often used synonymously. But it is different in that narratives can be less precisely tied into a tight story, less concerned with emotion, more varied, more open, more complex. That is, I want to use narrative to indicate the greater variety and openness of the stories that prove most useful as students become fluently literate, though I do want to preserve the importance of shaping events and facts to affect emotions. To echo chapter 1, instead of thinking of our lessons and units as sets of objectives we hope to attain, we can think of them as good narratives with which we hope to engage students' imaginations and emotions. Brian Sutton Smith wrote, quote, The mind is a narrative concern, end quote. This is a view that is becoming increasingly widely accepted. Jerome Bruner has also elaborated a view of the mind as involving a crucial narrative dimension. The older view of the mind as an elaborate calculating organ with reason as its mode of calculating has become increasingly untenable. Rationality is not simply a set of computing skills. The mind works as a whole, and its whole includes our bodies and our emotions and imaginations. We have discovered, or at least people who didn't know these things all along have discovered, that we make sense of our experience and the world in narratives that we can recall items and narratives better than in logically ordered lists, that we organize our memories more profoundly and reliably according to emotional rather than logical associations, and so on. Any fact or event, according to Alistair McIntyre, quote, becomes intelligible by finding its place in a narrative, end quote. And yet, developing the tool of narrative has tended to receive less attention than developing logical skills, which are seen to be more productive. But they are not separate chunks of our minds. Logical skills need the development of narrative tools to be used most effectively. Learning to follow a narrative is a vital intellectual accomplishment. Efficiently following a narrative means being able to allot significance, recognize what is important, fit parts together from textual clues, construct emotional meaning while registering events and facts, recognizing sequences through emotions, despite logical gaps in a narrative, and a range of other intellectual skills. As Northrop Fry put a related point, quote, the art of listening to stories is a basic training for the imagination. Quote. Being able to follow a narrative is crucial for efficient learning and understanding of almost any topic in the curriculum. It also enhances our manipulation of possibilities, which is what enables students to apply something learned in one context to another. One obvious reason why it would be desirable to pay more attention to narrative in education is that it is accessible to everyone. The focus on what Margaret Donaldson has called disembedded logical skills has disproportionately favored the minority of children who develop such skills early. While those logical skills are important, when developed at the expense of narrative tools, the results tend to be people who are good at doing specific things, but who lack flexibility and imagination. As Robert Coles notes, 
Quote, a respect for narrative is everyone's rock-bottom capacity, but also a universal gift to be shared with others, end quote. That is, if our aim is the education of all children, then it makes sense to attend to this basic and important intellectual skill we share and can use relatively easily for learning. In the imaginative classroom, we will be alert to narrative possibilities for all topics. Sometimes a brief narrative of a person's life can provide a context that makes particular knowledge meaningful and imaginatively engaging. To teach Pythagoras' theorem without some mention of Pythagoras' strange life and astounding and prophetic ambitions would be to ignore exactly what can make the theorem more generally meaningful and engaging. To teach the life cycle of the eel without mentioning the amazing work of Johann Schmidt in discovering that life cycle would be to greatly impoverish the topic. To study trees without exploring their central role in human history would be to miss out on what can make the botanical information gripping. Revolt and Idealism Students are exploring the roles they will take in the adult world and simultaneously resisting these roles. The early years tend to be powerless. Students are told what to wear, how to behave, what to believe, and so on. As they grow through puberty, the constraints that hem them in remain despite the increasing independence they feel, even if initially only in small ways. The revolt or resentments that students commonly feel are also fueled by their sense of an ideal world or circumstances. It is the denial of their ideal that leads to the revolt against those who deny them. But this is also the time at which students begin to form not only simple ideals about the kind of freedom that would allow them to color and shave their hair as they wish, but also about the world at large. They would like the world to be peaceful. They would like people to stop polluting the environment, and so on. The adult world's continuing war and pollution stimulate more general and diffuse revolts. In this dynamic, we can see an important cognitive tool, the ability to imagine a world or particular circumstances that are superior in some way to the reality the students experience, to recognize those features of the adult world that prevent their ideals being realized, and to revolt against them. And how can we use this cognitive tool in everyday teaching? Well, in nearly every topic we teach, math, no less than history, there will be examples of conventions or obstructions that prevent the achievement of some ideal, and there will also be someone or some idea prevailing against the conventions or obstructions. In the imaginative classroom, when presenting Boyle's Law, say, this principle will invite us to expose students not simply to the law itself, but to Robert Boyle's struggle against conventional ideas, and particularly against the prevailing belief, argued by Descartes and Hobbes, among others, that a vacuum could not exist. The great authorities claimed that ether pervaded space. Boyle's experiments couldn't locate this ether, so he dismissed it, and it has stayed dismissed. The students might also be reminded that since Aristotle's time and before, it was believed that everything was made up from the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. Instead, Boyle argued that matter was made up from different combinations of tiny, primary particles, which is how we still conceive of matter. Just a small amount of background on this extraordinary Irishman and a sense of his struggles against fixed beliefs and orthodoxies can engage students' imaginations in his discoveries that transformed chemistry and changed our understanding of our world in important ways. Teaching the arts in general, of course, provides an embarrassment of riches in seeing works of literature and other arts as having struggled in the lives of their creators against the barriers of convention and opposition of one kind or another. And much the same is dramatically true of the sciences as well. It is no great strain to provide some small background information to show what the artist or scientist was up against. Like all these tools, however, it won't be equally useful in all cases, and in some won't be of any use at all. But the imaginative teacher will be alert to the struggles people have undergone to bring into reality their ideals, usually in the face of opposition, abuse, and derision. Changing the Context One of the enemies of effective teaching and learning is students' and teachers' boredom, and one of the triggers of boredom is excessive familiarity and taking things for granted. 
John Bennett's Law of Mental Declension suggests that we always deal with any problem with the least outlay of intellectual energy possible. Think of learning to drive a car. Initially, you have to give it all your attention because the problems of keeping this moving mass of metal on the road are significant. After a while, as developing skill enables you to coordinate all the required movements of hands, eyes, and feet, you still give a lot of intellectual energy to the task of driving because it is a challenge you are beginning to master. After some years of driving, you hardly notice the acts you perform to get the car from A to B. It becomes quite automatic. Bennett suggests that this mental declension applies to all features of our lives. What is needed to stimulate the mind to move up the scale of intellectual energy it gives to any task is the introduction of a challenge. What does all this to do with teaching? Well, one problem with the classroom is its largely unvarying context, which students gradually come to take for granted. Remembering Marshall McLuhan's slightly mischievous claim that the medium is the message, we can see how the unvarying nature of the classroom can make much of what students experience in classrooms take on a uniform and somewhat boring cloak. At least, this is what most of the large-scale surveys of students' experience of school tell us. One way we can plan a change to the imagination-suppressing, taken-for-grantedness of the daily classroom is to change the context now and then. This doesn't mean redecorating so much as changing the kind of attention required of the students. When I was doing my teacher training, just after the Civil War, an ancient teacher, maybe 45 or 50, told me that if I wanted the students to learn and remember some important fact, then I should walk into the room with a huge pile of books balanced precariously. Slowly, with the pile threatening to tip to one side or another, I should move to the center of the room, pause for a few seconds, then drop the books in a heap. Quote, you've got about 10 seconds in which you can teach anything, end quote, he said. I tried it on the chemical formula for salt. When the books fell and the students all looked at me in silence, I slowly said, N-A-C-L. Over the next few months, and in a few cases later, when I asked any of the students from this class, every one of them remembered the chemical formula for salt, even though they couldn't remember many other formula we covered in that unit. I am not recommending that you wreck your library just to teach a few facts. Rather, challenges the students and greatly increases their attention and readiness to learn. So what to look for are ways of more routinely and less destructively changing the context in a way that presents an appropriate challenge to students. In the imaginative classroom, one common way to do this is for the teacher to take on the role of a character involved in what is being taught. When teaching science, come in one day as Marie Curie and present her work on radioactivity as though from her perspective. Describe her early work, the opposition she faced, expressing her emotional response and what motivated her, and the array of honors she received, including the two Nobel Prizes. An old-fashioned hat and a vaguely Polish accent is all that will be needed to significantly shift the context. Male teachers might have more success with Einstein, though some might look quite charming in the Marie Curie hat. In a history class, one can change the context by asking the students to pretend to be participants in the events being studied, and perhaps to debate the conflicting positions of the combatants. In math, a few old sheets can transform the class into a bunch of ancient Greeks discovering some geometrical theorem. A group of teachers might get together and plan a semester around one topic, say, edible grains. The whole curriculum can then be planned for the semester around the history of edible grains and their role in human settlements, the geography of the sources of the grains, where they were planted and why, the mathematics of grain production, sales and distribution, the biology of grains and their growth, and so on. The students can each be given roles in such a semester-long unit, such that their whole school day would be involved with their tasks in the growth, development, distribution, and study of grains. Who knows, you might discover a hidden actor inside, delighted at this kind of break in routine. The effects on learning can be surprisingly dramatic. There are endless ways to shift the context so that the routine classroom becomes a place where students never quite know what to expect. It is no longer the usual place where the usual activities can be relied on and taken for granted. The imagination can transform the classroom 
without anything much in the way of decorations or props, though those can sometimes help. One of the tools students have available is this ability to heighten awareness and attention in response to a simple challenge or puzzle. Traditional ways of changing context have involved such activities as field trips, but I focus on a somewhat different kind of context changing, a kind that is concerned more with the intellectual activity required of the student and that doesn't take hugely elaborate preparation by the teacher, though of course there is no end to the time and energy the teacher can expend, as all teachers know. The literate eye. During this period, when literacy comes increasingly to influence students' thinking, the eye is becoming crucial in accessing information. This has many consequences, which are subject to some dispute among scholars interested in the effects of literacy. But whatever the outcome of those arguments, it is clear that literacy leads to some techniques for organizing information that are both important and engaging for students to learn. I have mentioned earlier the value of making and manipulating lists, flowcharts, and diagrams. In many subject areas, many techniques can enlarge students' engagement and gaining control over areas of complex knowledge. Use of such tools also exercises and develops them in students. Today, many of these tools are built into computer programs, and certainly learning to use databases and other programs that aid organization and retrieval of knowledge can enhance this cognitive tool in students. Embryonic Tools of Theoretic Thinking While the cognitive tools of literacy are becoming increasingly sophisticated, students are also beginning to use some of the tools I describe in Chapter 3, the sense of abstract reality, the sense of agency, the grasp of general ideas and their anomalies, the search for authority and truth and meta-narrative understanding. In the imaginative classroom, especially with students who are making good progress developing the cognitive tools of literacy, teachers might want to bear in mind the burgeoning interest in general schemes, theories, ideologies, metaphysical ideas, and the other inhabitants of the theoretical world. The final example in Chapter 2 and a half suggest a quite easy way to build an embryonic theoretical dimension into any topic. Using the study of trees as an illustration, the trick is often just to be aware of the main arguments that take place about the topic one is dealing with. If it is eels, then some attention might be given to the threats to their habitats, raising, if only briefly, issues of environmental challenge against the desires of development. This will no longer be presented in terms of a simple binary conflict, but rather as competing interests in which we are complicit. It is not enough now to regret habitat destruction. Students must recognize that things they want, like iPods or computers, are made at an environmental price. That is, for the theoretic student's growing sense of agency, these conflicts are to be located within each person, not simply conflicts out there, allowing the student to easily associate with the good guys. By focusing attention on students' imaginations, we bring to the fore a set of somewhat unfamiliar topics. Or at least, if they are familiar enough in our everyday experience, heroes, the extreme and exotic, and so on, they are not so familiar in texts on teaching. My aim is to make these cognitive tools central to the task of helping students successfully attain flexible understanding. Using this approach, teachers can think of instruction not only in terms of acquisition of skills and knowledge, but also as an enlargement of students' cognitive toolkits. In fact, my hope is that it will become clear that focusing first on the cognitive tools will make it much easier to teach the skills and knowledge. The teacher will be both using the cognitive tools students have available and, reciprocally, developing those tools by exercising and enlarging students' use of them. That is, to emphasize a point, Knowledge and skills and cognitive tools are not competitors. Students can't develop cognitive tools without learning knowledge and skills, and while the point can be pushed too far, it is generally true that the more knowledge and skills students learn, the more highly developed their cognitive tools become. So this brings to the fore the crucial role that expanding knowledge plays in driving the development of literate cognitive tools. Understanding becomes rich and flexible and strong as it is supported and challenged by the constant growth of knowledge. A central feature of imaginative education is that the student needs to know a lot if the imagination is to develop adequately and to work effectively.
Ignorance is not a condition that favors the development of imagination. In concluding, it might be worth reflecting on the set of cognitive tools of literacy and on how they help us to see why Anne of Green Gables and Harry Potter, Luke Skywalker and Officer Ripley, Cleopatra and Alexander engage people's imaginations and how we might use those tools in everyday teaching.